0: up Healthy Charleston. So today's show is a little different. I'm sure you noticed we have a part 1. Next week we'll also have a part 2. Typically we have people on the show who live in the Charleston area, but we switched things up a little bit because we had a really cool opportunity to talk to Dr. Joe Tata. Dr. Joe is a doctor of physical therapy, a global leader in integrative pain care. He hosts his own podcast, The Healing Pain Podcast. You can check it out. Dr. Joe created the Integrative Pain Science Institute because he believes that there is a desperate need for better treatment of pain, care, prevention, and reversal of chronic disease as well. If you practice any sort of medicine, especially any PTs listening, you have to listen to both of these episodes. Joe is a DPT, a nutritionist an acceptance and commitment therapy trainer. If you know me and made to move at all, you can see why I was so hype about doing this episode. And because this is right up our alley, I could literally spend hours talking about this topic. Mm -hmm. So that's why we split it up into part one and next week we'll release part two. We talked a ton about the gap between education, what you learn in school, and pain care. How nutrition plays a role, what you can start doing differently right now, what this model even means, and a ton about chronic pain and and pain in general. Also, obviously, I'm usually the loud one on these episodes. I have no idea how to use this mic. I apologize for that. I am working on it. I also live downtown. I did this episode in my room. So if it sounds like I'm outside, it's because I almost am, but I promise I'm not. Again, I'm just a passionate PT learning how to do a podcast. Bear with me, enjoy the show. It was amazing. I promise you'll learn a ton. So, welcome back, Healthy Charleston listeners. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, all the way from Manhattan, I believe. Thanks to Zoom, of course. We have Dr. Joe Tata, creator of the Integrative Pain Science Institute. Joe is a global leader in integrative pain care and an advocate for the safe and effective treatment of chronic pain and the host of the Healing Pain Podcast. Welcome, Joe.
1: Hi, Hannah. It's great to be here with you. I, I love Charleston. And when uh, this whole pandemic is over, I can't wait to get down south and visit some of those great cities.
0: Oh, yeah. It's beautiful here today. It's actually like 64 and sunny out. So can tell, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Dr. Joe, can you tell me a little bit about what you do?
1: Sure. I kind of wear a couple different hats, but currently the, the two main hats that I wear um, is running the Integrated Pain Science Institute, which is a professional development and continuing education company for licensed health professionals who treat pain, where they can learn uh, more modern, advanced biopsychosocial interventions. Uh, primarily, my work speaks to mostly physical therapists, but as you know, Hannah, a lot of different practitioners treat pain. So, physicians, nurses, um, occupational therapists, um, health coaches, mental health providers—all um, kind of come to the institute for um, information and training. And then, of course, I treat patients—you um, know—as a as a healthcare practitioner. So, primarily, at this point, people with um, chronic musculoskeletal pain of one origin or another.
0: So, you are a doctor of physical therapy.
1: Yep, I have a clinical doctorate in physical therapy. I've been in uh, clinical practice since about 1996, so just a couple decades. Um, most of that time is focused on orthopedic um, conditions with kind of a focus on chronic pain.
0: So how did you go from you know, starting out, I'm sure treating patients, to now educating other clinicians and practitioners how to treat, how did you, how did you make that transition?
1: A number of different ways. I used to run a, a larger physical therapy practice in, in New York City, uh, in Manhattan, as you mentioned. And I had um, a couple different roles there. My position there was to, one, treat patients, but also to oversee um, the clinic director, as well as any um, new hires and new graduates coming into the practice, as well as the clinical internship program. So I oversaw a lot of different um, professionals at different phases of the career, those in school, doing their internships, those who just graduated and they're ready to kind of jump into practice, and then those that are, you know, moving on toward director positions. So with that, I, got, I really got a good kind of uh, scope of, you know, where a physical therapist is in school and kind of where they need to get to, so to speak, as they move along in their career. Now everyone's a little bit different, we all have different um, interests and different um competencies and proficiencies but in general there are some things that um, had, were themes there um, one the biggest one was understanding pain and then how to treat pain effectively from what we used to kind of just term a holistic approach so a holistic approach is kind of a layman's term for saying that there are many different contributing factors to pain and it's our job as licensed clinicians to kind of put on our detective hat and figure out which factors are contributing to this person's pain. Um, physical therapy, the profession of physical therapy, has come a long way. At one point, we were primarily just focused on uh, exercise and manual therapy and some modalities. I think the modalities have really started to take a, a back seat to the more um, active, psychological and physical interventions that we use as professionals and that we educate people. So that was the first place. Just started training physicians in the clinic. Then around 2014, I wrote uh, my first book, which is called Heal Your Pain Now. And I wrote that book really based on my experience as a professional um, in my education, taking continuing education courses, doing my own research, and then working with um, providers in the practice. And after that book came out, of course, people with pain read it because I primarily all my all my books I write first and foremost for the person with pain. But a lot of practitioners like to pick up my books because they're relatively simple to read and they kind of use them as like a guide in practice. So I would get lots of emails from practitioners saying, hey, I'd like to learn more about nutrition. Um, I only had one little like hour of nutrition in PT school where they didn't really teach me much. And I realized that this is a problem. And this is you know a big problem now with COVID. It's become really apparent to all of us that nutrition is important. Um, mindfulness. How did you learn mindfulness? Or I use a little bit of mindfulness because I'm a yoga instructor um, as well as a PT. How can I expand on mindfulness? How can I learn about other biopsychosocial interventions? So from there, I started um, really just listening to the challenges practitioners were having. Just like the challenges when I worked in the clinic, practitioners would come to me and say, Hey, I have this patient, I don't know what to do. People from the outside or practitioners from the outside were were coming to me with the same um, questions, the same challenges. So I, I founded the Integrated Pain Science Institute and started, you know, really servicing clinicians and helping them not only treat pain more effectively, but also helping them advocate for the safe and effective treatment of pain in their clinic and in whatever community that they live in. As part of the institute, one of the first things that I did, was I started a podcast just like you have, Hannah. Uh, We need more podcasts on lots of the different different things that we're talking about. And my podcast really, when I first started out, I was like, well, what's the podcast really gonna be about? Okay, it's gonna be about pain. So checked off that box. I was like, okay, there's a lot to talk about pain. What's really the mission of this podcast? And the mission of the podcast really became a public service announcement for the safe and effective treatment of pain. And I've carried that through over the, you know, 250 episodes. And whenever I talk to other great podcasters like yourself, I still try to carry that because we actually have a shared message, right? We have a shared message of helping people find safe and effective pain care that helps them return to the full active life that they're, they're looking for. So that's kind of the long version of how I went from just treating patients to kind of having, you know, a bigger mission and purpose around the work I do today.
0: Yeah, I love that you bridge the gap between what's mostly taught in school and then like the knowledge that a lot of providers crave almost and I'm sure our schooling was different but when you think about the practitioners and the the clinicians that you're servicing like we're all trying to treat pain but yet a lot of us don't get the knowledge and the education to understand pain. And I would think that we would want all of this knowledge. And we hear, you know, biopsychosocial, it's really trendy right now, but it's not new at all. It goes way back. But now because of podcasts, because of social media, because of people being loud with the right message, it's trending. And and people are like, oh, this really makes a lot of sense. Why haven't we been doing this this whole time? where do you feel like you were first introduced to this lens of treatment
1: it's a great question and it goes back a long way um i was first introduced to what we would consider a biopsychosocial approach or what i now like to call a lifestyle and behavioral intervention for people that's really what we're working on lifestyle and behavior intervention definitely Uh, really when i was a kid My mom was a nurse. My mom is a recently retired nurse and she worked the night shift in an adolescent cancer, um, part of the hospital. So she worked five nights a week, um, working with children. This was in the eighties before we had really good treatments for, for children who had um, cancer and leukemia. And she did that for many years in addition to, you know, taking care of the house and the kids and the family and all those things. So she got very burnt out extremely burnt out. She wasn't taking care of herself, wasn't sleeping well, wasn't eating well. Um, At that time, many health professionals, including nurses, smoked. Many of them still do. Um, Just a lot of, you know, just life stress. It's kind of difficult for women to be in that part of their life where they're juggling so many things. And she wound up having um, chronic anxiety and chronic pain. And I was about eight or nine years old, and I just watched her go through this and at that age, you're very impressionable, you know, that's that impressionable age. The interesting thing about my mom's experience is that she did not take medication. Um, she really just took things into her own hands. Now, I, I, think the, I don't necessarily think that people with pain should take everything into their own hands, but I do think the, the moral there is learning about pain through your own experience is a really good way to start to approach it. So what did she do? Well, she found a different job that was a little bit healthier for her. That took some time because you can't just quit a job, so to speak, if you need the income. Um, She fixed her diet. She got treatment for an eating disorder she had developed because that was the only thing she could control was food. She started, instead of um, having these anxiety and panic attacks, she started to use exercise as a way to relieve her stress and anxiety. So she did all these things that, as I mentioned, lifestyle-related behavior change, and it made a really deep impression on me. Now, in 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 the first year of college, when I was trying to figure out what to do, I was looking all these. I know I want to do something in healthcare, and you know, medicine, being a physician, always looks like the most attractive. But even at that moment in time, I knew that I want to treat people with pain, and the interventions that we have currently. This is before the research came out, before the opioid epidemic, I was like, this is not really the way you treat pain. People don't improve their physical function by taking an opioid. They don't improve their physical function by taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatories long-term. So that's really how I came to like this approach. Now, I think over the course of a uh, you know, 25-year career, I've kind of built out um, conceptual models and frameworks and courses to help support that. And as I've done that, some of the research has followed suit. And then some of the research has not. Some, as you mentioned, some of the research has been late. Like you beautifully mentioned, we've had the biopsychosocial model for decades. Why did it take so long for it to trickle down into um, pain care or PT practice in particular? So some of the things were there, and some of them were discovering, as you mentioned, just through practice every day, working with patients, listening to them and their story and um, their challenges and then taking bits and pieces from other aspects of medicine.
0: I feel like the reason that we're able to have this conversation is because we almost have like the same foundation of beliefs right because you got to see it in your mom which made a big impression on you formed these biases and for some reason I have those biases too, and I had the same problem with medicine. I liked math and I liked science, and everyone says, "Okay, be a doctor." Okay, I'll, I want to help people. And the way, and I graduated college in 2017, and the way that I was seeing that that pain and disability was being treated, like I I wasn't satisfied. I was like, "This isn't. This can't be it." I don't want to be on this side of it, um, and that's how I found physical therapy, not that physical therapy does, like, the much better job. It's just a different side of it, Um, and I feel like, I don't know how I found, you know, the lifestyle and behavior intervention, but for some reason, it was very, it meshed with what I had already believed, and I think that's why I was able to accept it and why everything else seemed like it was missing the forest for the trees. Like it just wasn't, it wasn't what I had. It wasn't my bias, um, honestly, but it, it seems like it's not the sexy thing and it's not the quick fix and like your mom changing her nutrition and eventually getting a new job and starting exercise that takes years and it, it takes hard work and, and consistency and that's not the new cool thing in research that changes your pain within an instant. It's not the the new surgery or the new pill. It is a lifestyle, which is, I like why you call it that. So on that note, where did your mom get this idea to change all of these things?
1: <laughs> That's a really good question. I, I've actually had a conversation with her not too long ago um, about this. And, you know, when you work inside the medical system, you see what's possible as far as um, adverse outcomes. And my mother's an excellent practitioner. She understands acute conditions, which most healthcare practitioners can identify, acute conditions. But we're talking about a chronic condition, right? So chronic pain, chronic anxiety, two chronic conditions. And she knew then that medication wasn't the answer for this. Medication wasn't going to solve it. Now, I'm not anti-medication, neither is she. Um, Medication has its place, I always tell people, in the lowest dose for the shortest period of time and ideally implemented with many of the different things that we're kind of talking about here today, lifestyle and behavior change. I want to come back to something that you said though, Hannah. Um, I think both you and I and our whole profession are in, we're really at a pivot point right now because so far we've thought that surgery and drugs are the way to fix pain. All the research right now, huge meta-analyses and systematic reviews demonstrate that medication and surgery does not help people live a happier, more active life with chronic pain conditions. So the pivot that's happening that you and I have recognized a long time ago, it are toward these lifestyle and behavior change interventions. It takes a little bit of time for that to trickle down into um, you know, our, our, our stratosphere. You and I are working on that with podcasts. It takes a little bit of time for um, the general medical community to start to embrace that, although that has happened with the opioid epidemic. And then it takes time for, for people themselves to start to reconceptualize what they thought pain was versus what it is and how, how to treat it. What's interesting is once you apply these interventions, somewhere, depending on the diagnosis and depending on how severe someone's condition is, so the earlier we catch these things, always the better it is, but anywhere between three months to a year, you can see a dramatic improvement in someone's quality of life. And when we say quality of life, as you know, we're not just talking about pain. Yes, pain does go down what we're most importantly uh, focused on or what we're really focused, what we're really putting under the lens is someone's quality of life, the meaningful activities that they want to get back to.
0: Which is ironic. And this is right where my brain goes. Is that so many physical therapists, like I became a physical therapist and I didn't want to go to med- medical school because I wanted a different lifestyle. I wanted a higher quality of life. I wanted to have a family and kids one day and not be in school until I was thirty two and I really wanted to help other people improve their quality of lives like didn't matter how, but that was my goal but yet we see so many new grads and physical therapists get burned out by trying to do that and it 's so ironic that we go into this profession wanting to improve our lives and improve other lives and because of a lot of barriers and a lot of reasons people are unable to do that. And they, they end up like maybe even putting themselves in a state of chronic pain and chronic stress and chronic anxiety. And it's like, how did we get to this point? And I, I like that you mentioned that we are in the pivot because I think that's a good point. And I think that's why it almost makes it more frustrating because we see both sides. We're seeing the shift and it's like, we're on the boat and we're trying to get everyone to get on the boat and stop drowning because we know what they're headed for. And it's like, if y'all would just jump on, we could all just finish this and we could all be, you know, happy la la land forever. But, you know, like you said, it's not how it works, but I like that you said, you know, it it will trickle down and, and really to be patient, um, and and just keep preaching these things because like the louder that we can be about the right message, the the more it will be heard. I mean, even in the past few years, this message has exploded. I think a lot of people are are taking to it. So you mentioned applying these interventions. What exactly does that look like? A- applying a lifestyle and behavior in intervention. What is that process like?
1: Yeah, I, I want to, can I just yeah. uh, back up just a small car length and talk about the practitioner for a second? Mm-hmm cause you brought up a really important point Hannah. practitioners who treat pain across the board, physical therapists, physicians, nurses, um, it's been well documented that they undergo something which is called vicarious trauma. Hmm. And that basically means that because you're listening to someone's pain all day long, that in a way it vicariously has an impact, an adverse impact on you. Um, some of that we know as professionals and we know how how to um, mitigate that some of that is actually because certain tools are missing from our toolkit for treating someone appropriately so most health professionals have a tremendous amount of empathy and compassion for people and they really want to help them overcome what they're what they're going through but they may be missing certain tools and when they miss those tools they're more likely to succumb to professional burnout and stress and anxiety themselves, that vicarious trauma, so to speak, because they're missing those tools. So a good part of the the work I do, um, and this relates specifically to mindfulness and acceptance approaches to pain, is not only training the practitioners to use those tools and interventions that complement the physical interventions that we have, but they also help us as practitioners with things like cognitive control, emotion regulation, self-awareness that are necessary for us to have as we work in our practice settings and as we help people um, overcome pain. So the skills, and this is is the, the point I really want people to know, the skills that we train our patients with are the same skills we need to train in ourselves to be effective practitioners. Um, So many of the practitioners who come and they take my mindfulness course or they take my ACT, um, acceptance and commitment therapy course, the first thing they say is, this is so interesting because I don't know anything or I know little about psychologically informed care or psychologically based care. Wow, as I go through this program, I'm starting to apply these things not only to my patients, but also to aspects of my life. Because we all struggle with some kind of physical pain. And we all struggle with some kind of emotional pain at times. And as I mentioned, having these skills helps us both in the clinic be effective practitioners and helps us outside the clinic be just more effective humans in the life that we live.
0: So what are what are these skills? And because I wasn't taught these things in school at all. Of course, (laughs) you know, I was taught a lot about manual therapy and what exercises to do for this pain and like you mentioned before, modalities, which Fortunately, that is trending out, but I don't think that we are taught to start with you. And I think that's what is so frustrating is that you have to practice what you preach and like, how do you expect the person across the table to improve their outcomes and their quality of life if you can't even do it yourself? And, and then you bring in imposter syndrome because you're like, oh, well, I can't even do this myself. How do I get someone else to do it? What are those skills? How do we mitigate? It was vicarious trauma, you said?
1: Vicarious trauma is what what you'll find in the literature with regard um, to what happens to professionals when they work with people with chronic pain, chronic comorbid uh, mental health conditions, and they don't have these skills themselves. But the the lifestyle skills that we're really talking about, um, I boil down into what I call taking your meds. And by meds, I don't mean, uh, medication, but med stands for, uh, the M stands for mind. E stands for exercise or physical activity. D is diet and S is sleep and stress relief.
0: It's that simple, right?
1: That's simple, right? Just that simple. So the meds mind, exercise, diet, sleep, and stress. So those are the kind of the, the four big ones that as a practitioner, when you're evaluating someone, those are the things that you should keep in mind and obviously your intake form should reflect that. And then you have to start to counsel someone on these lifestyle related changes and you need a behavior change mechanism for that. The behavior change is part of it. So that's why I start. I studied acceptance and commitment therapy because it is a, a, an advanced form of cognitive behavioral therapy that you can use for that behavior change um, aspect.
0: I feel so like understood for once and I feel like the world brought us together because I've been looking for like this education almost and because so many so many people I treat I'm like I I wish that I had like the education of a mental health therapist um, because I I feel like I need it.
1: It's interesting so I just finished a study Hannah and I I surveyed a, a bunch of PT schools on this topic, on the topic of what are you teaching in the curricula with regard to lifestyle medicine, um, cognitive behavioral therapies, mindfulness act, pain education, all these topics. And the paper is not published yet. I'm I'm actually presenting at um, the world Congress of physical therapy on it. But what I can tell you is that we have entry level skills. And physical therapists actually have better entry level skills to treat pain than any licensed healthcare practitioner. So we're there, like we've, we've kind of reached the, the edge of the cliff, so to speak. I think one of the challenges is that people kind of jump off that cliff kind of without a pair of wings and they jump right into treatment instead of saying, okay, how, what do I need to support kind of this flight, my career, so to speak, I have entry level, right? But how do I now build those skills? And that's really the key. The key is when you come out, it's like, if you come out of school with an MBA in business, it doesn't mean that you're ready to be the CEO of the company, right?
0: Exactly. It
1: means, hey, basic knowledge, check that box off. I have my learner's permit or I have my license. Now I'm going to start to drive through all the different terrains of my career. The same thing really happens with licensed health professionals. We come out and see, they don't tell you this in school though. That's kind of the biggest problem. They don't lay it out in a way that's very clear and they say, hey, here's, some basic, here's what you have the basics on. Here's probably what you need more work on regarding professional development and continuing education. Uh, and that's where professionals get stuck. And unfortunately, there's a sea of continuing education courses out there. And most of them are of very poor quality and based on very outdated paradigms for treating certain conditions. So when professionals come to me, they, you know, uh, um, they get uh, you know, a lot of information from me, but I'm not going to put out um, junk into the world as far as education goes. Like I'm very kind of grounded and, and firm in my, in my mission of um, helping people with high quality skills that serve them both personally and professionally um, in their life.
0: I feel like exactly like I, I know that I am supposed to be asking pretty much meds. Like I know I'm supposed to be asking about sleep and stress and nutrition and their training and their exercise, but I don't feel like a lot of people do that in asking those things. And then, and then it's like a lot of the patients are like, why are you asking me about my sleep and my nutrition? And I, I get this answer of like, I'm not stressed and I eat fine and Yeah, I I take walks and I'm not asking it as a way to like invalidate your invalidate your pain. I'm I'm asking to get the whole picture. And but then from there, it's almost overwhelming in an evaluation, especially with someone dealing with chronic pain, of everything that they that they're experiencing and, and their beliefs and what their life looks like. And you're like, what do I do? with this information, like we almost like, where do I start? Um, because at that point we probably have like maybe 30 minutes left. I just met this person. I want them to trust me and not, you know, I'm not trying to overhaul their whole life because that's not how behavior change works, but it's like, where do we start? And you mentioned behavior change. And I think we, we got a lecture on it and it was motivational interviewing, uh, which is better than nothing. And it, it did start the conversation but it, it wasn't about the process and it it leaves you with this car, but you have no idea how to drive it, but you know, you have to drive it.
1: That's right. So you kind of look at the dashboard and you're like, I know I need to kind of refill the oil tank here, but I don't know what kind of oil to put in the tank, so to speak. And what you are describing, Hannah, um, I've actually lived because when I went to school initially, PT was still a bachelor's degree. Mm. I went back for my transitional doctorate and and kept up, obviously, with the um, profession. I'm supportive of the professional doctor. And I think as doctoral trained licensed health professionals, we have a lot to offer. Um, But my whole career, in essence, is wrapped up into really what you're saying. I see what the problem is, but I don't know how to um, get to the other side of it, so to speak. And some of these Some of these are are challenging problems, right? Some of these are are problems that people have had for decades. So it doesn't happen overnight. As I mentioned a couple moments ago, you can do really well with just some exercise and I've had patients that, you know, have cured their chronic pain in three months and then I've had people who've had, you know, multiple diagnoses, fibromyalgia, diabetes, they've all these, you know, comorbid conditions that really require Um, them to be coached, if you will, over the course of probably a year or potentially more to help them with that lifestyle-related behavior change. Um, And there's a big part that's missing there that is very, very hard to train, and that's the therapeutic relationship. And that relationship typically happens on session one. It's kind of like the first date. Yes. Yes. On the first date, do you like this person or do you not like this person? Do you think they can help you or do you not think they can help you? And that's why when I used to train practitioners, I was like, first visit is an hour long. I want you to spend no more than 20 minutes on the physical evaluation. And the rest of the 40 minutes, I want you talking with the patient, obviously taking a history, letting them tell their story. I want you to tell their story back to them. And then I want you to ask them, where they would like to start with their care and what they think is most important. Um, And in fact, who and what is most important in their life? That's what I really want you to dial in with that patient. Who and what is most important to them in their life? The first first thing they're gonna say is I want pain relief. That's fine, say, we're gonna work on that, right? Check off that box. And the next is, but I'm really interested in hearing, Hannah, about the people who are most important to you in life and the activities that you miss in life, since pain has kind of robbed you of that. And let them tell that story. And within that first hour, if you put the computer to the side and put the clipboard down and the notes down, and you're just face-to-face with that person, communicating with them and listening to them, that's the opportune moment to solidify that therapeutic relationship and to start that bond And from there, then the patient trusts you. Then you can start to speak about, hey, you know, what's your diet look like? What did you eat yesterday for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And then you can start to break that down. And have you ever been on a diet? Have you ever tried to lose some weight? Have you heard how um, certain foods have anti-inflammatory components that are even stronger than medication? And you start to kind of pique their interest and you can kind of work some of those foods into their diet or potentially even take them in supplement form as a place for that as well. So there's lots of different ways to start to, you know, kind of uh, breach this divide that we have.
0: That just made me so excited because I feel like it's, it's such great advice that I'm like hoping if anyone that like whoever's listening to this, if you treat patients, like an easy thing to implement is just what you said, let them tell their story and spend most of the initial evaluation, like getting to know them. And there's a joke around the clinic that I need 90-minute evaluations. We have 75 minutes right now, which is amazing um, because 45 minutes in, I'm like, oh, wow, we should do some sort of physical screen. Um, But I feel like you get so much more valuable information, especially in patients with chronic pain, um, from their story. And of course, we're talking about chronic pain here, patients who sprain their ankle, in the gym, it's a little bit different. I think still same thing applies, um, but I think sometimes it is a little bit more straightforward Um, and like viewing yourself as a coach, I think it makes a big difference. And so I I think that's really great advice for people out there. What's up?
1: Sometimes the, the way I did, so a lot of therapists come to me now because I'm talking about the psychosocial aspect of it and they have this almost like instinct to want to do more talking than moving, so to speak. And we definitely should not throw away exercising physical activity, that's not what we're saying. We're basically saying that the the way to motivate someone to move and engage in physical activity is through the psychosocial variables. But sometimes, for some people, you can help them move better by targeting their mind versus targeting their muscles. And that's a little bit of a shock to a traditional physical therapist where they feel like I have to, this person has to exercise right here at every session for the entire session. And I'm like, no, 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 no. They're, they're, once they're done with you, they're going to go home, right? Or eventually therapy is going to end. So in essence, you don't want them to rely on you. You want to spark that fire that motivates someone so that they'll now do this, whether, you're, whether they're in therapy or not. I mean, the truth is the some of the research around compliance rates of home exercise programs are super poor because someone comes in, we print out exercises, we give it to them, we show them how to do it, and we send them along the way. It's very mechanical almost. Where the behavior change aspect of it is how do I rev up the behavior change so that someone will engage not only with the exercises i'm giving them but also with those valued life behaviors that they're missing out on or that they're scared to engage with because pain became a challenge
0: i think you can you can give someone the best exercise program in the world you can write it out four weeks here you go and they walk out the door and they're like well that's not really what I was thinking. And then they're almost even more overwhelmed because they're like, they view it as, oh, I have to do all of this at once to get out of pain. And I think it comes from us feeling like our value only comes from doing and action. And we don't view the talking and, and what happens behind closed doors as action. We view, I have to dry needle someone, I have to massage someone, I have, we have to be exercising. And I, unfortunately, in insurance based practices, you, you almost do have to be doing those things to get reimbursed. Um, So I do feel very lucky that I am in a direct pay setting where I can spend an hour, the full hour talking with someone. And it always makes me so happy when that person is like, Hey, I don't, I don't want to do any exercise today because I feel like this is more important. I'm like, Oh, like, thank you for saying that because I still feel like people expect certain things. So what do you do when you do bring these topics up and patients are almost like, why are you asking me these things? Why does it matter? Are we not going to do a movement screen? How do you approach that?
1: Well, that rarely happens at this point because people first either – discover my website, which has a whole, you know, I start kind of clicking around my website, which has a whole bunch of information on lots of the topics that we're talking about. Um, and or when I send them the initial intake paperwork, my intake paperwork is asking about stress and sleep and anxiety and fear, um, All those aspects of uh, of care of pain basically so uh, diet so they're expecting that something's going to come there and this is important for the clinicians we have people fill out tons of forms um which i've kind of whittled them down to a, um a very key set of forms to look at all this um it's uh 30 questions 30 questions or less actually which is great the research shows that beyond 70 questions people just kind of like zone oh out gosh, so yeah but the most important part is now take, once the person's filled out those forms, sit down and use that form as a mechanism for counseling and go through the questions that came up as, you know, factors indicating that this is a, an indicator of their pain. Um, people, we don't, we as professionals, we kind of like zip stuff up really fast. Like we can look at those forms, boop, you can make a calculation boom, and you're off to the treatment session, so to speak. People with pain, are, they're dying for the information. They're dying to know what is the problem, what's contributing to it, and how are you going to help me, and what can I do for myself? And the answers are in many of those um, self-measure intake forms. We just have to take the time to go through with someone. So people rarely come to me and say, um, why are you asking me about diet? Why are you asking me about you know, sleep? And there have been studies on this where they've looked at patients and they said, hey, do you expect your physical therapist to have knowledge or ask you about sleep, nutrition, stre- stress? And the answer is yes, they expect us to do that. They expect that that's in our scope of practice, and it is. All this is well within our scope of practice. We just have to um, put it into practice.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head on over to Instagram. Find us at Healthy Charleston. Leave us a review on iTunes. If you ever have any topics you want us to talk about or guests you want to bring on, feel free to DM us. Otherwise, thanks again.